This morning, I want to I want to finish with the prayer of Daniel that we began looking at last week in our time together from Daniel chapter nine. Recorded in the first 19 verses of this chapter is a prayer that Daniel prayed. It was the Puritan pastor John Owen who said that what an individual is in secret on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. Well, in this passage, we're privileged to listen in on a man of God who's down on his knees. Daniel, by this particular point in his life, he's in his early 80s. He's lived the vast majority of his life in exile in Babylon. Uh, He's a man who's walked with God throughout his life, a man who knows God in a personal, intimate way. Daniel had been determined to keep his mind and his heart devoted to God, even though he was faced with all kinds of pressure to conform to a Babylonian worldview. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't buckle under the pressure that was put on him largely due to the fact that he was a man of prayer and a man of faith. So committed was Daniel to his prayer life that he was willing to be thrown into a lion's den rather than to abandon his altar. Now, the last half of the book of Daniel deals with visions that concern the future. Uh, Chapters 7 through 12 largely are visions that God gave Daniel about future events, the future concerning Israel, But in between the midst of these visions, we find a remarkable intercessory prayer that he prays on behalf of his nation. Most people are familiar with Daniel chapter 9 because of the prophecy of the 70 weeks, which sort of serves as the backbone of all Bible prophecy. That's recorded at the end of the chapter. But what you may not realize is that that prophecy was really an answer that was given to Daniel in response to the prayer that he prays here in the first part of the chapter. And so for Daniel, prophecy was not something that merely fueled his speculation, but rather it fueled his prayer life. Because of what Daniel knew to be true from God's word and what God had revealed concerning the future, it was something that drove him to his knees in prayer before God. And it ought to do the same thing for us. The Bible says that the more that we understand that we're living in the last days and that Christ could return any moment for his church, listen, that's something that ought to lead us to not abandon the assembly of the church, to not abandon our prayer altar, but it ought to make us more prayerful people, more observant people, uh, more people who are committed to the local assembly of believers. It does that in Daniel's life. And the prayer that he prays in this chapter is one of the most powerful prayers that we find recorded in Scripture. And in many ways, it serves as a model that we can learn uh, in our own prayer lives. I think it was Howard Taylor, who was the son of Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission. In the biography that he wrote of his dad, he said that the son, uh, that for 40 years the son never rose on China that didn't find his father on his knees praying on behalf of the Chinese people. Well, the same thing could be said about Daniel who's praying on behalf of his nation, the Jewish nation that was now in exile because of their disobedience. So if you've got your place there, Daniel chapter 9, let's read this prayer once more beginning with verse number 1. The Bible says that it was in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, 
by descent a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who were near and those who were far away, in all the lands to which you've driven them because of the treachery that they've committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. In other words, Daniel's looking back at what had happened. For nearly 70 years, God's people were being held in captivity, carried away into captivity by the Babylonians. And Daniel recognizes that it was because of their sin and because of their idolatry. And in Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, God had told his people generations and generations before Daniel's day that if they were unfaithful as far as living up to the terms of their covenant responsibilities, that God would bring invading forces against them and carry them away to foreign lands. And so Daniel says that's what happened. God's been true to his word. He's confirmed his word. He's confirmed his word, which he spoke against us and our rulers who ruled us by bringing this calamity upon us. Under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. Verse 13, as it's written in the law of Moses, all of this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning away from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. In other words, Daniel is saying, look, as painful as this exile has been, we've not yet reached our breaking point. We've not yet cried out to God in repentance. Now, let me tell you what the Jews had done. Psalm 127, they prayed for the destruction of their captors, the Babylonians. They wanted God to pour out judgment on the Babylonians. But up until this point, Daniel recognizes we've not hurt bad enough to repent of our ways to personally own our sins and to confess our sins and cry out to God. So verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept ready this calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice. 
And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and our iniquities, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that's called by your name. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now that's the prayer of Daniel. And there's a lot that we can learn from the prayer of Daniel as it relates to our own prayer life. When was it that Daniel offered up this prayer? Well, verse one tells us that it was in the first year of Darius the Mede. Uh, in other words, it was at a time of transition that Daniel prayed. There was a change in government and it was in a change of government, a time of transition, that Daniel hits his knees in prayer. And under a new regime, Daniel realized that there were some changes that were going to take place. It was something that God had shown him previously. The kingdom would go to the Medes and the Persians. And yet, when he realizes the predicament that the Jews were in, it brought him to a place of intercession. And so Daniel's pouring out his soul before God. He's turning to God in worship rather than fearing the unknown. He's a man with a burden, and that burden drives him to his knees in prayer. Daniel understood the fact that when a nation forgets God, when a nation moves away from the founding principles upon which that nation was established, then destruction is not far behind. Daniel understood that national sins result in judgment. That's where the Jewish nation found themselves. And so Daniel hits his knees, and he's a fitting model. And from his prayer, there are at least five principles about prayer that I want to draw your attention to, at least a couple I've already pointed out last week. So notice, number one, that for Daniel... Daniel's prayer is a prayer that is instructed or informed by God's word. It's in the first year of Darius the Mede that Daniel is spending time in God's word. Verse 2 says, I perceived something in the books. He was reading the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah. And as he was reading along about Jeremiah chapter 25, that section through the 29th chapter, uh, the prophet Jeremiah had foretold decades and decades before Daniel that the Babylonian captivity would be a time of 70 years. At the end of 70 years, God would pour out judgment on the Babylonians. Uh, God would honor his covenant, his promise. He would remember his people. Uh, after a period of time, 70 years, they would be brought back into the land. God said, I will visit you. 
I will remember my promise. I will fulfill my word. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And God says, you'll call upon me and you'll pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so Daniel, as he's reading that, uh, it motivates him to go to his knees in prayer. And so really the prayer that he prays is in response to what he reads in God's word. He comes across the promise of God to bring his people back. And so Daniel, in many ways, he's simply going to God in prayer and he's saying, Lord, would you do what you've said you're going to do? Now let me tell you, the word of God ought to energize your prayer life as a believer. Uh, There's something about when you open up your Bible and you spend time on your face with God in fellowship and God speaks to you from his word, it's something that energizes your prayer life unlike anything else. That's what it did for Daniel. And so we learn from that that all of our praying really needs to be based upon the truth that we read in Scripture. Scriptural prayers are those prayers that God delights in answering. Now, a second principle that I pointed out had to do with the will of God. Daniel's prayer is, uh, it's informed by God's word, but it's also conformed to God's will. In verse three, he says, I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. So Daniel isn't praying and trying sort of to manipulate God and try to get God to bend his will to Daniel's will, but rather for Daniel, prayer is him being conformed to the will of God. It is through prayer that God is conforming his servant to God's revealed will. The fact that he turned his face to the Lord, this is something that implies a posture of submission and surrender. Which, by the way, the fact that he turned his face to the Lord mean that he had to turn away from some other stuff in his life. You know, it's hard for you to turn your face to the Lord while you're wanting to face everything else going on in the world around you at the same time. Oftentimes, I can't help but think that we give God our distracted lack of focus simply because we can't turn off and tune out the world around us enough for God to have our undivided attention as his people. We've got so many distractions nowadays like we have never had. There's always some kind of a ding, some kind of a swoosh, some kind of alert going off. And now most of us are even going to church online with all kinds of interruptions that that's caused. But Daniel turns his face away from the stuff of the world. And folks, he turns his face to God in a place of prayer, in a place of intimacy, in a place of fellowship. And is it any wonder that he hears from God in a powerful way in his life? He's a man who is submitted. He's a man who's laying hold, uh, he's laying claim to the promises of God, and he is conformed to the will of God. 1 John 5, 14 says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So for Daniel, prayer is a matter of spending time in God's word. His prayer is informed by God's word. His his prayer is conformed to God's will. But then notice third, that he is also assured of God's character. 
Daniel prays from a place of confidence in who God has revealed himself to be. Look at verse 4. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. And notice the first words out of his lips. He says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So Daniel is praying as an act of surrendered worship. For Daniel, before prayer was anything else, prayer was a matter of worship. And that's what prayer ought to be in the life of any believer. It's not merely a means by which we present a grocery list of our needs to Almighty God, but prayer is the means by which we engage God in worship. You might could say that Daniel's prayer is a worship-based prayer rather than a request-based prayer. You know why I think a lot of people avoid prayer meetings in the local church? Because they've been to one before. You say, what in the world are you saying? Well, because for the longest time, prayer meetings was spent mostly by people giving this request for this and this request for that. And I'm all for prayer requests, but it seems like we tack prayer on to the very end of, of a long gossip session where we've requested prayer for everybody and their brother, and we've done very little praying. But for Daniel, listen, prayer was not simply a means of making requests known, but rather it's, an, it's a means by which he's engaging the God of heaven in worship. He's worshiping God. He's fully aware of who God has revealed himself to be, and he's worshiping God on that basis. Nothing will transform your prayer life any more than when you make the switch from a request-based prayer life to a worship-based prayer life where worship is the driving force behind your prayer life. That doesn't mean you don't make your requests known to God because we're commanded to make our requests known to God. But until I've worshiped God and I've got a word from God in his word and my will is brought into alignment with his will, I don't even know what to ask for. But once I've worshiped and once God's brought me into a place of submission before himself, he then begins to impress upon our hearts those desires that are near and dear to his own heart. And that's where Daniel is. What is it that he understands about the character of God? Well, he knows that he's great and awesome. He knows that he's a God who forgives sin. He knows he's a merciful God. He's a holy God. In fact, you'll notice that Daniel uses the covenant name of God here in this chapter. This is the first time that the covenant name of God is used in the book of Daniel. The first time that it's used is right there in verse number two. And then in verse number four, as Daniel is praying to the Lord. Whenever you see in your English translation the word Lord used in all capital letters, you know that that's a translation of the covenant name of God that God revealed to Moses. Yahweh, I am that I am. And that's significant that Daniel is using the covenant name of God here as he prays because it's the covenant name of God that reveals he's a God of relationship. He's the God who has related himself to us. He's the God who has brought us into relationship with himself. And Daniel uses the covenant name of God as he calls upon God to honor his covenant promises. But he doesn't just stop there. Daniel uses all three proper names of God that are recorded in the Old Testament. 
Yahweh, that's the covenant name of God, represented by the all capital letters, Lord. But then the word God translates Elohim in Hebrew. Uh, The name for God, Elohim, is the name that illustrates uh, the creative, omnipotent power. It's the the name that, that speaks of God in his creative ability. It's the name of God that's first revealed in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, The creator God who speaks life into existence. Uh, He's the God who creates ex nihilo, out of nothing, everything out of nothing. It's Elohim. Nothing is too difficult for this God who is omnipotent, who has all power. And then you'll notice there's a third name for God that Daniel uses in his prayer. The word Lord, that's not used with all capital letters, translates Adonai. The the word Adonai uh, speaks of God as being our master, ruler. Yahweh, he's the God who relates. Elohim, he's the God who reveals. Adonai, he's the God who rules. He's the sovereign Lord of my life. That's who Daniel is calling upon here. And so for Daniel, he's he's assured of God's character. He's confident. He knows the God upon whom he is calling. And he's worshiping. It's the attitude, the same attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 27. One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And so Daniel is gazing upon the beauty of the Lord in his prayer. Daniel's prayer is one that seeks God's face before it seeks God's hand. Now let me tell you, as a believer, you ought to seek both God's face and God's hand. You say, what's the difference? Well, God's face speaks of the essence of who he is. I'm to seek God's face. That speaks of fellowship, closeness, and intimacy. Uh, When your kids were small, maybe you were down on the floor rolling around and playing with them. Did they ever do something, you know, where they took their little hands and maybe you looked away for a moment, but they grabbed you by your cheeks and pulled your face close to their face because they wanted to look into your face or your eyes? That's kind of the idea here. Uh, when, when, when believers are to seek the face of God, it speaks of seeking intimacy. It's the intimacy that we can experience with God by means of his presence. And then to seek his hand, that's to seek his blessing, his provision in our lives. We oftentimes have no problem seeking God's hand, especially when we're between a rock and a hard place. When we're painfully made aware of the depth of our need, we seek God's hand. And we ought to seek God's hand. Jesus instructed his disciples to ask, to seek, to knock. Seeking God's face means that I'm seeking his presence. Seeking God's hand means that I'm seeking his provision. If all I ever do is seek God's hand, I may miss the intimacy that can be experienced with God when I seek his face. But when I seek the face of God, then I know that he gladly opens his hand and will satisfy the deepest needs of my heart. That's what Daniel understood. Listen, did you under, do you know that if God never answered another one of your prayers, if he never gave you anything else, he would already have given you far more than you deserve? If God never answered another one of my prayers as a believer, he's already given me far more than I deserve by means of his grace. And that's something that Daniel well understands. 
So his prayer is informed by God's word, conformed to God's will, assured of God's character, and then notice fourth, Daniel's prayer is one that's identified with the people of God. Most of his prayer is a confession of sin. You'll notice there in verse five, he says, we have sinned and done wrong and we've acted wickedly. We've rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. You ought to go through Daniel's prayer and underline all of the pronouns that he uses in his prayer. Rather than using words like me or mine or I, Daniel prays in plural terms. At least 39 times he's using plural first-person pronouns. He's identifying with God's people. Now, you know that Daniel's only, really only three individuals in Scripture uh, are mentioned, uh, and there's nothing negative recorded about their life. Daniel is one of those individuals. Doesn't mean that he was sinless. Doesn't mean that he was perfect. We know that he was a man just like we are who wrestled with his flesh. But nothing negative is said about Daniel in the pages of God's word. You think about his testimony in in Babylon. He's a man of impeccable character, a man of integrity. And yet, in his prayer, he's not praying on the basis of his own righteousness. He's not pleading with God on the basis of his own merit, but rather, in a show of solidarity with Israel, Daniel is corporately confessing the sins of God's people, and he's including himself in that number. Charles Spurgeon said something about this. He said that a true-hearted believer doesn't live for himself. Where there's an abundance of grace, a great strength of mind in the service of God, there is a spirit of unselfishness. Daniel's prayer should, by the blessing of God's spirit, inspire us with a spirit of prayer, and that his example in forgetting himself and remembering his people should help us be unselfish when we pray. I mean, keep in mind the model prayer, even the model prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray with the corporate community, the body of Christ in mind. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this, that. So you see, even the model prayer reinforces this idea that when you get saved, you're born again into the family of faith. If we're not careful, we can so individualize our Christian experience that we make everything all about us individually to the neglect of the family that we've been born into. So Daniel is is remembering God's people here. He's aligning himself with God's people, identifying himself with God's people, and he is confessing sin. Recognizes that he, as well as all of Israel, had been guilty of turning their backs on God, forgetting the faithfulness of God, and so he's confessing his sin and his need for God's grace and forgiveness. Kind of reminds me of a parable that Jesus told. Uh, keep your finger here in Daniel 9 and go to, go to Luke chapter 18 for just a minute. I want you to see this. Luke chapter 18, <clears throat> Jesus gives a couple of parables which illustrate the proper attitude and approach that we're to have when we come to God in prayer. The first one is in the first part of Luke chapter 18, and uh, it's a parable that illustrates the attitude of persistence. 
the, the persistent widow in the story illustrates the persistence that the believer is to demonstrate in his or her prayer life. Verse 8, Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? At the return of Christ, what, what's the shape of the church going to be in when Jesus comes for? Is persistent faith that goes to God in prayer on its knees in faith and with confidence, is that going to be characteristic of the church? Is that the type of faith that the Lord is going to find in my heart and in your heart and in our life corporately as the church? Well, then you get to verse 9, and Jesus gives this parable about two men who go up to the temple to pray. Uh, and, and he told it because there were some in the crowd who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. They felt like they were good and upstanding citizens of heaven. Everybody else, you know, was beneath them. And Jesus told this story. Two men go up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself. Notice he's isolated. Notice he's aloof. Notice he's disconnected, not identifying with God's people. He's standing by himself, but he prays this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But then the tax collector who's standing afar off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast. It was an expression of his grief and his repentance. But he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the man who went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Daniel, in his prayer, he's humbling himself. He's, he's taking the posture and the attitude of the tax collector who's confessing his own sin, who's identifying with the sins of God's people. His heart is burdened over the condition of Jerusalem that had been destroyed decades before by the Babylonians. The temple had been obliterated. The sanctuary was desolate. And Daniel recognizes that it was all because they had refused to obey God's voice. And yet, as painful as all of that was, God's people had not come to the place of repentance in their own life. Let me ask you a question. Do you, do you think for one second that the difficulty that we've experienced as a nation and as a people this year is merely coincidental, or do you believe that God in heaven is getting the attention of our nation? Is he getting the attention of the church has the discomfort that you felt in your life this year and things not being the way that they've been in years prior and all of, the, all of the fear and all of the anxiety and all that's gone into stuff this year, has it brought you to a level of discomfort so much so that it's created an increased burden in your heart that drives you to your knees in prayer before God? Because as bad as things were in Daniel's day, God's people hadn't yet come to the point of repentance. As long as the problems that are going on around me or everybody else's, and as long as my problems can be blamed on everybody else rather than me taking personal responsibility, I've not yet come to the point of brokenness that revival requires. 
And so when we're experiencing the consequences of our sin, the only thing that remains for us is to repent. And that's what Daniel recognizes in his prayer. So his prayer is informed by God's word. It's conformed to God's will, confident of God's character. He's identified with the people of God. But then last, notice how in his prayer, ultimately, Daniel is concerned for the glory of God. The, the underlying motive behind his prayer is it's not so much for himself or even for his people. But the number one thing that Daniel is concerned about above anything else is the glory of Almighty God. The reputation of God among the nations. Daniel recognizes that through the exile brought on by the disobedience of God's people, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem where God had placed his name, the fact that it was laying desolate, God was being robbed of his glory. God's people, God's reputation had all been reduced to a byword among the nations, an insult. They were a laughing stock. And that grieved Daniel's heart because he knew that God was deserving of glory. And so Daniel gets to the end of his prayer and then he begins to make petition. You might could say that the Acts method of praying, using that word Acts, A-C-T-S as an acrostic, A is for adoration, C means confession, T is thanksgiving, S, supplication, you, you sort of see that same pattern uh, you know, embodied in Daniel's prayer here. He's begun with adoration and worship. Most of his prayer consists of confession of sin. Thanksgiving, that's reflected through what he constantly acknowledges throughout his prayer about God, his character, the fact that God is gracious and merciful, willing to forgive. He's a God who keeps his word. But then supplication or petition, here toward the end of his prayer, Daniel makes his request known. And really the only thing that he requests is connected with the glory of God. There in verse 16, he asks God to turn away his wrath from Jerusalem. Uh, verse 17, God listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy for your own sake. Move in response, answer my prayer by means of your powerful name, by virtue of your great name. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. So you see that the motive behind his praying here is the glory of Almighty God. He desired for the nation to be restored, for the temple to be rebuilt, that God's name might be glorified. It was Alistair Begg who said what starts and sustains a prayer meeting is a group of people who are concerned that God is being robbed of his glory. What is it that sustains prayer in my life and in your life but this, this overarching concern, this undergirding concern for the glory of God above everything else? And we need to ask ourselves, is that the ultimate motive behind our prayer life? Is that the ultimate motive behind my involvement in the church? Is that my ultimate motive behind every act of obedience and service that I render unto the King of Kings because I am concerned that he be glorified above everything else? So Daniel's magnifying God here in his prayer. 
You know what it means to magnify something? Uh, It means to make much of something, to zoom in on something in order to get a better view of something. You know, you can magnify with a couple of different instruments. You can magnify with a microscope. A a microscope sort of takes that which is microscopic and brings it into view. It takes something that's small and makes it look bigger than it really is. But then a telescope, on the other hand, zooms in on something that to the naked eye looks really, really small, but in reality it's something that's really, really big and majestic. Think about whenever with a telescope, you know, you zoom in or you've seen those pictures of the planets, Jupiter, Saturn, you see the rings around Saturn and all of the detail. It's not obvious to the naked eye, but when you magnify it with a telescope, it's awesome. I tend to think that often we take microscopes and we look at our problems with microscopes. We magnify those problems. We magnify those worries and we tend to make them bigger than what they really are. Now, y'all might not be guilty of that, but I can tell you I'm guilty of that in my life. The things that often I worry about and I fret over that tend to occupy my mind and my heart, if I'm not careful, I can zoom in on that stuff and make it seem bigger than it really is when what I need is a telescope that zooms in on the awesome glory of Almighty God. And I've got to get that view of God who's bigger than my problems, God who's bigger than my concerns, God who's bigger and far greater than my worries. Zoom in on that, that he might be glorified in all things in my life. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. That's a promise from God's own word. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, on the basis of my authority, on the basis of the access that's now been granted to you as a believer who now can come boldly before God's throne of grace, whatever you ask in my name, Jesus said, that will I do. And ultimately the motive is that the Father be glorified in the Son. So what are you asking Jesus to do? What are you asking in his name in order that the Father might be glorified in the Son? Is it the salvation of someone you love? Maybe the spread of the gospel among the nations. Maybe for God to use this time to purify his church, to build his church, to create a hunger and a thirst within the hearts of people for truth and for righteousness. Maybe it's for spiritual awakening in our country. Aren't these days that call for God's people to get on their face and cry out to God on behalf of our nation in a show of solidarity? No longer are we content to merely point fingers at the culture around us, but like Daniel, we're going to say, Lord, we have sinned. We have rebelled. We have turned our back on you. 1863 our nation was on the brink of disaster as the states were entrenched in the Civil War. 1863 was the middle of the Civil War. On March the 30th of that year, President Lincoln proclaimed what he called a national day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Now I want to read that to you. Listen to this. Whereas the Senate of the United States 
devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and nations, has by resolution requested the president to designate a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins in humble sorrow, yet with confident hope that repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, to recognize the truth announced in Scripture, proven by history, that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And insomuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates our land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. In other words, they're looking around and they're seeing the ravages of the Civil War and they're saying, listen, this is evidence of God's judgment on our land. God's trying to get the attention of our nation. That's what they're saying in this proclamation. We've been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power like no other nation, but we've forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace, multiplied, enriched, and strengthened us, and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins and pray for forgiveness. Now therefore in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the view of this Senate, I do by this proclamation designate Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863 as a national day for humiliation, fasting, and prayer. I hereby request that all people abstain from their ordinary pursuits to unite at places of worship and in their homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord, devoted to the humble discharge of religious duties proper to the occasion. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessing, no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. Two days later, two days later after that was issued, a freak accident happened that historians say altered the course of the Civil War. Up until that point, the success was largely on the side of the Confederacy. But the freak accident was this. One of the Confederacy's best generals, a guy by the name of Stonewall Jackson, was accidentally shot by his own men. And he later succumbed to his injuries and died. But he was one of the most just greatest tactical commanders in, in, in military history. Historians speculate that what might have happened uh, 
Had Stonewall Jackson lived, he no doubt would have been at the Battle of Gettysburg two months later, which would have resulted in a Confederate victory, thereby changing the entire outcome of the Civil War. It was Billy Graham who said, to get a nation back on its feet, we first of all have to get the church back on its knees. Can we truly say, in God we trust? Let's stand for prayer this morning. Folks, when sin ravages our land, when it affects the witness of the church, the prayer of Daniel ought to be our prayer. Informed by God's word, conformed to God's will, confident in God's character. He is a holy God, but he's a gracious God. He's merciful. In a show of solidarity with God's people, concern for God's glory, we make our petitions known to Almighty God. Do you have a burdened heart in some way this morning? If you don't know Christ as your Savior, then let me tell you something. You can be saved. Your sins can be forgiven. Where sin did abound, aren't you grateful that grace did much more abound? Our God is a God who forgives sin. But you come to him on his terms, not your own terms. You come to him in an attitude of repentance, confession of sin, trusting that he died on the cross for you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, in Jesus' name, we're so thankful that you're a God who hears and answers prayer. And Lord, Daniel prayed in a time of transition with a heart that had been energized by what he read in the word, what he knew to be true about God's promise to bring his people out of captivity. Lord, you've promised in your word that you'll save those who believe. You've promised to build your church. You've promised to come again. All of this, Lord, should energize our prayer lives as Christian men and women. Lord, may we pray for those things that are near and dear to your heart, that are in keeping with your will. We know that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to faith and repentance. That's what we long for. Lord, for America, it's what we long for, for Green Street Baptist Church. That in these days of chaos, Lord, that we would be a people who take the telescope of God's word, we zoom in on the glory of God, rather than magnifying ourselves, may we make much of King Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.